You can turn to Matthew um, chapter 24. That's where we're going to be um, this morning. So Matthew chapter 24. This is actually our third week in this passage, and, uh, and we've been spending some time here. Matthew 24 and 25, and we'll be the Lord on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24 and 25 passage, um, but in a lot of ways I've also been dreading it. Um, and there's reasons for that. I've been excited because passages like these are important for us. There, there's this danger within the church, um, and the first one is is to be, uh, be to be scared about teaching on passages like this, is to actually avoid them. In fact, there was a very well-known pastor who wrote um, probably one of the most read um, Christian books uh, in the last um, 50 years. And um, he, he gets to Matthew 24, and he talks about prophecy, and he, he, he essentially says is that the disciples asked Jesus about what was going to happen in the future, and Jesus changed the subject. And, um, and, and totally ignored the rest of what was happening in Matthew chapter 24, because they do ask Jesus some questions. And Jesus does answer in a way that they don't expect. But he didn't change the subject. In fact, he just pressed into it in a different way than they expected. Now, the other danger that the church has found itself in is focusing so much on the second coming that it almost comes across as reading tea leaves, trying to figure out what's going to happen, and, uh, and focusing so much on it that we end up backing ourselves into corners. And so... Somehow, we have to be at peace with walking through passages like this. Prophecy accounts for approximately one-fourth of the entire canon of Scripture. So over 25% of Scripture is prophecy. And we have to take it seriously. Now, um, depending on where you land on prophecy, at least a half of the prophecy spoken about in Scripture has been fulfilled. Professor and theologian J. Barton Payne lists 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. And so the part that I've been dreading is, is how do we navigate the vast differences of opinion related to passages like what we're in today? Because even, even people who are totally committed to the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture have different views on the prophetic passages of the Bible. And we can put up the slide that I had up last week. Now, this is called eschatology. And eschatology uh, means is, is last and final things. And so anything that talks about um, last things, final things, that's what we call eschatology. And there's all of these different views on this, and there's millennial views. And so the idea is, is that the Bible speaks of there being a millennial kingdom that will last a thousand years, and it's in Revelation chapter 20. That's the only place in Scripture that speaks about a, a, a thousand-year period of time uh, and, uh, and people interpret that a little bit differently. And so you have three different views on the millennial views, and within those three different views, you can see that there's different views within the views. And that's so interesting, because within premillennialism, there's, there's two well-known ones. There's actually more than this. There's historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Within postmillennialism, there's full preterism and partial preterism. And, uh, and then within... Premillennialism, there's dispensationalism, which there's at least four different um, kind of views on dispensationalism. There's classic dispensationalism, revised dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, and John MacArthur dispensationalism. 
And so I guess when you've been teaching for 80 years, you can have a kind of dispensationalism just named after you. Um, but then also within that is tribulation views. And, and this has to do with is, is this idea that there, there's a rapture. Um, all of these agree that there's a rapture. Um, some people think that it's before a, a time of tribulation, a serious time of tribulation, a seven-year period of time of terrible time. And some people believe that believers are going to be raptured before that time of tribulation. Others believe that it's going to happen mid-tribulation, and others believe that it's going to have to happen post-tribulation. Everyone agrees that there will be a rapture. It's just whether it's before the tribulation or after the tribulation, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Anyway, I mentioned last week I listened to probably eight hours of sermons and lectures on this. And this week it was only about six hours. And it's interesting because even as I listen to different pastors, they're all saying that this is really challenging, in Matthew 24 specifically, it's really challenging to, to figure out where to land on some of these things and that there can be a lot of disagreement. I, I love what Doug Wilson said about the millennial views, is, is, and I mentioned this last week, is, is that it's the thousand-year period of time where there's peace and joy and love, and this is what Christians love to argue about. And, uh, and, uh, but it is important. It is important. And, and I think that we, uh, we can get a lot um, from talking about passages like this. And so in spite of the different views, there are a few things that we can agree on. And, and this is one. Jesus wasn't necessarily focused on a precise description of everything that will happen leading up to his return. Instead, he was focused on preparing us for it. So precision wasn't the goal. Preparation was the goal. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 all have Jesus' words on this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each give us perspective on Jesus' words. And what we know is that there are two prophecies here in this passage that we can agree on and that were highlighted the first one is, is the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. And I spent a lot of time talking about that last week. A lot of time talking about when the Romans came in to destroy Jerusalem, no one escaped. No one escaped. And I found it very interesting. I heard this from um, Don Carson, who um, is a theologian, uh, um, a speaker, writer. And uh, he said is, is that all of the Christians could see the signs of this coming the destruction of Jerusalem. And by AD 68, all of the Christians had left Jerusalem. And the Jews did not see it coming. And when the Romans came in, they absolutely destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And, um, and the tribulation that happened um, was total. And, uh, and you can go to last week's sermon on the website um, if you want to know more about what that looked like and what Matthew has to say about it. So the first prophecy, the destruction of Jerusalem. The second prophecy is Jesus' return. Those are things that we all agree on. The various views um, happen when, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, um, how we read these passages and how we organize these passages results in different views. But here's what we know. 
This passage and the rest of Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus will come again. Jesus came the first time as a baby wrapped in humility to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Matthew tells us that his return will be unmistakable. Matthew 24, 29 through 31 tells us that when he comes, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. A sign in heaven will appear, the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And and, and a lot of people say that this is figurative language because apocalyptic language, so any language that has to do with the end times is called apocalyptic language. It has a lot of symbol and a lot of metaphor and a lot of figurative language. And, and so some people say is, is that this is figurative. And, and other people say is, is that, yeah, there's definitely figurative language and symbolic language in, in apocalyptic literature and in times prophetic literature. But at the same time, even within all of that mysterious figurative language, there's a lot of the literal also. And so uh, last week I referred to is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that the sky was darkened and that there was an earthquake. And that, that even, even um, there was cosmic disruption at the crucifixion of Christ at the moment that he died. And so we have to be careful about saying, no, it can't happen this way which sometimes people that speak of it being figurative or symbolic, they, they might lean towards that. And I say, oh, hey, wait a minute here. Is it may be, but we have instances like this where the Bible said that something, um, something cosmic happens and everyone knows that there is a shaking going on on the earth. And so we need to be careful. It says that a sign in heaven will appear. The tribes of the earth will mourn. And, and you might think about, is the tribes of the earth, why are they mourning? Well, where, where do we get this language of tribes? And we get it out of the Old Testament. Is it the 12 tribes of Israel? And there's a lot of people that think that that, that that description of the tribes of Israel mourning, that they're mourning the fact that they rejected Christ. They're, they're, they're recognizing that they missed the Messiah. And they're mourning. They're mourning the fact that they rejected Jesus. And that they now see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Personally, I think that even if this refers to the tribes of Israel we could ask is, is, what does this mean? And we might say, what does it mean for anyone who rejects Jesus? What does it mean for anyone who rejects Jesus? And if we're genuine followers of Christ, then we should mourn our own tendency to deny Christ. And you might think, is, is well, we don't do that. And I, and I would submit as a suggestion is, is what if we do do that? Just by persisting in sin that we know is wrong. Just by, just by refusing to grieve the sin that's in our lives. Or to downplay it and say it's not that big of a deal and we're forgiven and, and it doesn't matter. It's all under the grace of God. 
And I would say that there's a little bit of a danger in that because a lot of people who claim faith in Christ live as practical atheists on a moral level. And so it's good for us when we're reading this to say is, is Lord, you know, how, how might I reject you just in everyday life? And I'm not saying that you do this. I'm saying that there's times when I do this. Or just because I overlook the sin in my life or I don't grieve it. As, um, Charles Spurgeon, I read something on Instagram. It's a terrible, terrible um, thing to be on Instagram. No, uh, I didn't mean that. That's not a part of the sermon. Um, <laughs> but Charles Spurgeon, um, a little deal came up with one of his quotes, and he said is, is that if we do not um, shed tears of mourning at our sin then we should shed tears at not shedding tears over our sin. And that this week just grabbed a hold of me. And so there's this picture of Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven shows up over and over again in the Bible. One of the most prominent places is in Daniel chapter 7, and this is one of the prophetic passages. In verses 13 and 14, um, Daniel says, I saw in a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and language that serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his, his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this is Daniel. He, he's seeing this vision and he's seeing into the future and he's saying one like the son of man and Jesus describes himself as the son of man. And, and there's this picture of him coming one day on the clouds of heaven and when he comes, his kingdom will be established and it will be established forever and ever. And it shall not be destroyed. And Matthew picks up this same language and, and talks about there being this trumpet call. And sometimes when we think of trumpets, we think of someone out there with a brass pipe, right? Is no, this was a shofar. Is the idea of a shofar is, is it's this ram's horn that the people of Israel would carry with them. And when they went into the battle or when they won a great victory or when they were declaring the presence of the king, that there would be messengers that would blow into this shofar to declare that the king has come, victory is here. And so there's this picture of this trumpet call, and, and we don't know what that'll look like, is, is, but there's this, there's this huge announcement. And other passages pick up on this. This is where you get that passage, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. As you move a little bit further into Matthew 24, it talks about this lesson of a fig tree. It says, from a fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. And this is in verses 32 through 35, and I covered this just a little bit last week. And some people see um, the fig tree as being an image of Israel. I, I think this is the most simple definition of this um, part of it, is that, hey, there's going to be signs, and so look for them. Yesterday, I was mowing my lawn, and I, I just got frustrated because I saw yellow leaves on my lawn. And it's, it's like... It's like been 90 degrees and it's been nice out and it's been all summery and now all of a sudden there's yellow leaves on my lawn and not just a few of them. It's like one tree in particular just decided it's fall. It's like they can't decide together. One just decides 
hey, I'm declaring it's fall, and I'm like, I'm not ready for fall. And, but there, there's these lessons we see in nature. Nature gives us signs that a new season is coming. And so if you want to read this at its most simple level, is, as Jesus is saying, is, is you're going to see signs of the times of my return. And you can argue a lot about it, but, but here's what's important is, is just notice that there's some signs that will be unmistakable. And we talked about this last week with, with, um, with there being signs, and I'll talk about it a little bit more this morning, is, is, but there's going to be unmistakable signs. In verses, um, verses 36 through 39, they remind us that Jesus' timing, the timing of the return of Christ, it will confound our wisdom and exceed our expectations. And so what I want to do is I want to read verses 36 through 51. 36 through 51. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master, his master, will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that house will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first thing that these verses address is the second coming of Christ. Over the years, there's been a lot of people that thought they had the time of his return down. Many of them were well-meaning people, and they loved the Lord deeply. William Miller was a well-known intentional, godly man who said that the Lord was coming on October 22nd, 1844. Enough said. Hal Lindsey wrote the best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, in which he predicted that Jesus would come in 1988. He continues to write books about the return of Christ. He's gotten a little less precise over time. So, to his credit. Edgar... Uh, Wisenant, who was a NASA, NASA engineer. These, these guys aren't dumb people. This guy was a NASA engineer. He sold 4.5 million copies 
of his book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Going to Come in 1988. He hasn't sold any since then. What's really funny is I was listening to sermons by older pastors who had all kinds of people in their congregations who were mad at them that he went preach, that they went preach um, on the 88 reasons why the Lord was coming in 1988. <laughs> and uh, in fact, um, Trinity Broadcasting Network interrupted their programming on that day um, to tell people how to get ready for the rapture. The next day, their programming went on as normal. It's not just Christians, though, who are interested in in times, kinds of thinking and the chaos that surrounds it. A few of you who are young enough to remember Y2K, remember that? When computers across the world were going to shut down um, and, and where we could be thrown into the dark ages. And it wasn't just Christians who reacted to that. And then every time there's a war with a nuclear-armed country, we end up hearing talk of um, war that ends in oblivion. And so we can be gentle with each other. Um, Christians sometimes are prone to overdoing things. But in part, it's because we want to be faithful to Scripture, and Scripture tells us to be prepared. Scripture tells us to look for the signs. So we need to do that, and we need to not be afraid of doing that. And we also need to remember we're not going to be able to figure it out exactly. Our comfort is not in knowing the day or the time. Our comfort is in knowing that our Father in heaven knows the day and the time, and we can trust him. Between now and then, there will be marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking and everything else that is a part of life. And the emphasis in this passage, when, when Matthew's saying this, is the emphasis is on it, it will happen in the midst of the ordinary events of every day. People will be eating and drinking, they're marrying and they're giving in marriage, they're living, they're dying, they're going to work, they're, they're buying and they're selling, they're making money. And in places, there's going to be people starving, and they're going to be fighting, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be famines, and there's going to be earthquakes, and there, there's preaching going on today. Um, life goes on. It just goes on. And one of the things Matthew 24 reminds us is, is that all of these are signs of Jesus' coming from his first advent to his second advent, from, the, from being born as a baby to coming again as the Savior who will judge the world. We also have to remember is that comfort has its danger, which is why Jesus shares what he shares with his disciples. And I don't know about you, there's times where I'm just really comfortable. In fact, there's times where it's so comfortable, it's like, hey, Jesus, you can wait another week or maybe another month, and then things get bad, and it's like, come, Jesus, come. Wipe out these people. (laughs) right? 
It's kind of a back and forth. Comfort has its danger. But the message here is, is don't be caught unaware like the people in Noah's day. Because only eight people understood that doom was approaching. Everyone else was too busy getting married and having children and buying a house in the suburbs. And and then the flood came and took them away. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24 at this point reminds us, or it reminds us, and this is especially in verses 9 through 14, which I covered last week, but it reminds us to persevere and to not fall away. Because it says that a significant number of people are going to fall away from the faith. That during, during this in-between time, a lot of people will express faith and fall away from faith. And that there's going to be a lot of hatred and that we have to fight against hatred. That we have to know that there's false teachers and false prophets that we need to refuse. It says, don't let your love grow cold. And this is a temptation that in the church that that we often face with each other and with others. Is that we get jaded because of all of the brokenness around us and because how people fail us, how other Christians fail us, how pastors fail us, how leaders fail us, how people outside of the church fail us. And we get jaded. And it becomes too risky to love. And our love grows cold. Matthew repeating the words of Jesus, tells us to endure to the end. In fact, how do we know that we're really a follower of Jesus? Is that we endure. And then the last one is, is proclaim the gospel. We should not be ashamed of proclaiming the gospel. It does mean good news. But we treat it as though it's awkward and Maybe hard to share with people and things like that. And so even though Christ's delay seems long, his return in judgment will seem so sudden and it will take most people by surprise. Judgment. You know, in this, um, in this passage, and now some people see this as referring to the rapture and some people see it as referring to judgment. And people get caught up in arguing about it and taking strong stances on whether this is the rapture or whether this is the final judgment. Don Carson has an interesting statement on this. He talks about these two vignettes in here that are in verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. And Don Carson talks about this, this just historically speaking, is two men in the field are probably a father and a son or the father in a close hired hand, and the two women grinding at a hand mill. And when you look back in history, is, is, is you think about how this worked, and, um, and you think about even um, at this hand mill grinding flour, there's, there's this grinding that's going on, and, and there's one person on one side and another person on another side, and there's this there's this handle that sticks out, and to turn the wheel, one person would pull the handle around, and the other person would grab it and push and pull around. 
And this is probably a mother and a daughter or a mother and a daughter-in-law and they're grinding the flour and, and he's saying is, is that the two people in the field, that could be a father and a son and the two people at the, at the mill, that could be a mother and a daughter and, and they're together. And then the end comes and one is taken and the other is left. And it, it is sudden. And the point here is not to establish whether this means a rapture or taken in judgment. It seems like we miss the point of the passage because the result is the same. The point is is that this context is a sudden cleavage taken away from each other where even close family members will be completely disassociated from their environment in this sudden catastrophe. And and what this means is, is that when the Lord returns, that it will be so sudden and there will be a separating that occurs that in many ways is absolutely heart-wrenching. And I believe that we could say that it helps us understand that the return of Christ also ushers in judgment. And it will be so surprising because our hearts will be exposed. Our sentence may be shocking. In Matthew Matthew chapter 7, Verses 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And just even reading that should just rend us to some extent. It, it, it should, uh, the word rand is, is almost a ripping apart. Because we can think that we're safe and secure and be totally lost. We have to realize that when judgment comes, our lives will stand out and they will stand alone. And we need to be prepared. Matthew chapter 25. Next week, we're going to look at the parables. But Matthew chapter 25 gives us more insight about the final judgment. In verses 31 and following, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And I don't think the purpose here is to say that that we're saved by the good things that we do because the people who are doing the good things didn't even know that they were doing good things. Is that it's, it's to emphasize the shocking part of final judgment. The people who think that they are in will at times be out and the people who did not even notice that they were in or that they were in, are in instead of out. And then verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is interesting, as I know that there's a big movement um, right now to question the literalness of hell. Jesus himself is saying, is, is it, and, and here's the thing about hell. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for, not for people. But there's this depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the entire book of Matthew is about that we've been invited into a kingdom that's different from the kingdoms of the world. That we've been invited into the kingdom of God and the, and the characteristics of the kingdom of God are totally different than the characteristics of the kingdom of this world. And what Jesus is really saying here is, is that there's kingdom principles that are embodied by my people that are not embodied in the world. And my people do things unthinkingly that embody this different kind of kingdom. And to a great extent, they'll say, when did we do those things? When did we care for you? And he says, you cared for me when you embodied the things that I care about. When your heart gets broken over the brokenness of the world and you help people not because they deserve it, but simply because of my love. When you embody that kind of a kingdom ethic, it affirms that you are a kingdom person with a kingdom heart. And all of this goes to say is that Jesus wants us to be prepared. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death. But he was also preparing them for a time when he would come again. And he said, here's what the signs are going to be. Is when I come again, here's some of the things that you can be aware of. 
And so be on watch. And he also set up principles for us to follow between now and his second coming. And I think that that's something that that we can hold on to. Is we can we can have views on all of the details and things like that, and it's good for us to do that. But I think what's most important is is for us to remember that we are living in a time between two monumental events, the first coming of Christ and when he will come again. And what we need to do is is keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is what Hebrews 12 reminds us of. In Hebrews it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Keep, keep Keep your eyes on these things. Keep your eyes on the Savior. And yes, look for the signs of the times because they all point to the day when he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead and there will be a separation that occurs and it should motivate us. It actually should motivate us, one, to live godly lives ourselves. It should also be, motivate us not to be afraid of sharing our testimony with each other. And, and not the kind of testimony where we just proclaim, you're going to hell. There's much better ways to say it, okay? Apart from Jesus, we're all going to hell. But the good news is, is hell was not prepared for us. And, and we're called to trust in Jesus. But... Um, but to remember this, in, um, in, this uh, in this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrews were going through incredible um, persecution, and he's, he, he's reminding them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. This is, you're going to go through hard things. You're going to go through tribulation and tribulations. You're going to go through really hard things, but keep your eyes on Jesus. And then in Hebrews 12, 12, it says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes troubles and by it that you are defiled. And it talks about this. And then it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made hearers beg, that no further messages be spoken to them. And it, and it talks about, it talks about is this, you know, of course, is, is this, um, this, uh, there's this reference to this coming of the Lord. And it says, do not refuse him who is speaking. But it says, therefore, let us be grateful at the end of Hebrews 12. Let us be grateful for, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
the kingdom of this world will one day be shaken to its core. But we're called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We can trust that God loves us. And that he tells us these things so that we can be prepared. And that we can be excited about his return. And we don't have to get all crazy. And we don't have to worry. We cannot change or adjust the timing of his return. We can only be faithful between his first coming and his second coming. And that faithfulness happens as we keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, you're so good and you're so gracious, Lord, and we need you so much. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your love and your goodness and your grace and that we can trust in you and that when we, the true trust in you is trusting in Jesus. And trusting that the way that we live now, that it matters. And Lord, we're in a battle between now and when Jesus comes again. We're in a battle that's not flesh and blood, but it is a battle against sin and hurt and brokenness. And so Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we would just know that you are in control. And that even though we haven't resisted the point, sin to the point of shedding blood, that one did, that Jesus did, and he did it for us, and he did it perfectly. And that because he resisted sin and died on the cross for sin, that he has the victory, and that that victory is extended to us. So Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we wouldn't be discouraged as we leave, but rather we would be encouraged. And that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are good and that there will be a day where you will make all things wrong, right. Lord, help us to live well. Help us to know how to share our faith. Help us to trust Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.